Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 142 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan is the sound recordist. Hey. So we're back from Christmas. How was everybody's Christmas? Good, yes. You were there, Bailey. You know how mine went. Yeah, you guys all had a Christmas together. I feel a little bit left out. Did you make any did you make any important to read list decisions without me? We decided we're watching movies instead of reading books. I hope that's fine. Oh, finally. We're that podcast. <laughs> uh, no, I had a great Christmas. I went up and spent time with my family in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. In unnamed town, Northern California. You'll never find out, listeners. <laughs> except for those of you who are my family. And then uh, for New Year's, I went and hung out. Uh, me and my wife went back to England, hung out with her friends and family. Spent some time. It's cold over there, you know. I wore a big coat. <laughs> it was fun. You realize that we were in, in Maine, right, Toby? I wore a big, big coat. It's windy. How was Maine, guys, and New York? Well, Maine was great. I'll, I'll talk about Maine, because I'm always in New York. Mm. Maine was great. Uh, it was much colder than it was in England. Uh, we wore bigger coats than you. Yeah. Mm. And there was snow. Nice. I went to my 15-year high school reunion. Ooh. Whoa. <laughs> did you make that decision at the last minute, or did you know you were going to go? I knew I was going to go. It okay. was it was the day after Christmas. Dylan came. I thought more people would bring their husbands and wives, but Dylan was the only one. <laughs> they what? Did you were the only? <laughs> they did not bring their husbands or wives. They were there to party. Wow. For a 15-year reunion, I would have thought, like, it would have been expected. That's like, what a five-year, it's a little awkward, like, do you do it? But for 15, I feel like cards are on the table. Yeah. Poor, poor Dylan had to listen to a lot of, like, inside baseball stories, mm. but... Yeah, Bailey played top ball <laughs> in high school. But I got to listen to a lot of main accents, so it was worth it. Yeah, yeah, the best part was, so I went to a school where the um, mascot was the Clippers, Clipperships. And so... <laughs> okay, Los Angeles has a basketball team called the Clippers. You can't laugh at that. It's not... I'm not from Los Angeles, and I will say both of those are bad mascots. Well, there's actually Clipperships in Maine, yeah. in our yeah, town in Maine. Yeah, fair enough. I, ju- I just, inanimate objects as uh, as mascots never made sense to me. It's not the best Go one. Go Clippers! I mean, just imagine, like, on the basketball field, it's just like nobody could move because it's just full of Clipperships. I mean, with the right wind, they could all move. <laughs> and we the had, game is progressing east. We had about 20 people come, which doesn't seem like a lot, but we had 120 people in our class. So that's like a significant yeah. portion, considering the day after Christmas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we had a little sign that said, like, you know, YHS 2004 reunion. <laughs> and as we're talking um, near the end of the l- night, this drunk guy walks past and is just like, Clippers suck. <laughs> 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 and then walked out. <laughs> wow. That's pretty great. But it was pretty funny. <laughs> Clip was <suck. laughs> Wow. And, you know, my Christmas was good. Like I didn't get any books, and it's fine, and let's really? move on. Wait, but Bailey, I got you books for Christmas. <laughs> I actually believed you. Who's the fool? Who's the bigger fool at this table? <laughs> I uh, mean, I got a few. Okay. Okay, I got <clears throat> 11. Oh, my uh, gosh. You only got 11? I only got 11. 11 is a lot. Yeah, so 11 books. Andrew, my lovely brother, got me five <laughs> books. The Great Believers, My Sister the Serial Killer, The Starless Sea, The Most Fun We Ever Had, and Daisy Jones and the Six. Hmm. Which, you know, people on Instagram saw my pictures and they're excited for me to read. So I've read three of those, I think. Really? What about The Starless Sea and The Most Fun We Ever Had? They're both signed editions from The Strand. Oh, cool. Very cool. I got a gift card and... Do you ever get a gift card and it's for $25 and you one book is $20 and you're like, well, I have to mm-hmm. get two, yeah. even though both books are 20 
Well, you don't want to let that, let that $5 go to waste. You can't. You can't. There's no way. So I got uh, Frankly in Love by David Yoon and The Swallows, which looks like a fun YA drama. And then when we were in New York, we went shopping again. Where? The Strand. <laughs> <laughs> and also, and then we had to go to McNally Jackson. So I got Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney and Flowers uh-huh. in the Attic by V.C. Andrews, which I've been wanting to read forever a bold move yeah <laughs> and then my mom handed me the testaments by margaret atwood had to take that and then my friends got me the nickel boys by colson whitehead so that comes down to 11 books 11 new books wowzers wowzers i mean they're all pretty good though and a lot of them are short like my my sister the serial killer is real short right that's what i'm hoping so 142 plus 11 is 153 <laughs> and then <laughs> when i get around to donating those other three books that I will eventually be brave enough to donate. It will be 150. And I'll put it right back up to 153 with a gift. So I'm really, really making it my goal. I'm saying it now to not buy any books this year. Wank. <sighs> really? But I think part of me, like, buying them is like people enjoy the shame. They enjoy me talking about it. So I feel less <laughs> guilty. No. And it's like, I got to get these numbers down. This is insane. Did anybody else get Christmas books, Christmas shame? I did. I actually, for me, this is deep, deep shame. Way more than usual. Uh So I got a bunch of books. The number is even hard to describe, and you'll see why. The number is hard to describe? It's a number you can't even fathom. (laughs) Okay, so let's just jump to that. My lovely girlfriend Jillian, who composed our, our theme music, got me for Christmas a set of his dark materials. So the three books Ooh. in a little box. So that's three. That That's three. That's easier because that's mm-hmm. those are separate books you pull out. You can take the golden compass out. You can take the subtle knife out. Easy. Then she also got me The Ultimate Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is uh. all of the books in that series in one volume. To be fair, to be a complete set of a series of books, it's only 815 pages. Yeah. And we'll have to cross the bridge when we come to it <laughs> about how that book's treated on the to read list. Yeah, I have one. I have um, Rabbit Run and Rabbit Redux, the two John Updike rabbit novels that are two in one. And it's like, if that gets chosen, do we have to read two books that week? Oh, I think those are those are to be read as separate books, especially the Hitchhiker's Guide one, because they're published. I mean, he published them separately. They are complete separate novels. It's not like they're like... But then you can't say, like, oh, I'm done with this book. I can take it off the to-read list. But you can count it for your Goodreads reading Oh, that's challenge. true. That's true. All right. Well, TBD on that one. Yeah. We'll cross the bridge when we come to it. I think it might be fun if you, like, incentivize reading multiple novels. Like, maybe you get to pick your next two books if you read the complete version Ooh. of something. I don't know. I like that. We'll figure it out. Can we gamify it so that on Andrew's list, The Hitchhiker's Guide 1 is number 42? Ooh. How dare you? It's alphabetical, <laughs> I don't, Toby. Yeah, I was going to no. say, it's going to be almost impossible. Wow. No. <laughs> All right, so then what else do you get? Real quick, I got a book called Confederates in the Attic by Tony Horwitz, hmm. which looks very interesting. It's a nonfiction book about the South, so we'll see. Mm-hmm. A graphic novel, a gift for my mom called Killing and Dying. Don't know what to read into that, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, And just to run through the rest of these real quick, I got Turtles All the Way Down by John Green, Unsheltered by Barbara Kingsolver, and The Hmm. Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. I have The Goldfinch. Maybe sometime we'll do a sister-brother episode. Much like this episode right now. Neither of you have read The Goldfinch? Nope. Oh, I have. <laughs> so yeah, it's a lot a lot of shame. Uncharted territory and amount of shame for me. But hey, that's what it's all about. So I have shame as well. I have quick shame. I'll be very fast. Toby. I got two books. Oh, wow. So it's such I shame. I got Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by Yasmin Nosrat. Mm-hmm. 
Nice. She has a Netflix show. It's all about cooking. And uh, and then I got The Dungeon Master's Guide, which is a book. Like You can read it. That, would it count for the to-read list? Can you review it? Uh, no. Yeah. So I think you only have one shame, Toby. Hooray! And that one's like half cookbook. So yeah. I got half a book. Yay! <laughs> that was just your roundabout way to shame us even more, Toby. Exactly. It was. <laughs> I have read, I will re- highly recommend it. I read like half of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. I've read Salt, Fat. Uh, <laughs> and it's really good so far. I'm really enjoying it. Also, I gave you guys for Christmas all t-shirts from Out of Print. I got Toby one for Redwall. It's so great. Uh, I got Andrew one for Dracul. Dracul. That's cool. And Dylan's wearing the one I got him. Dylan, why don't you say which one it is? Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait. Did you also get a pair of socks, Dylan? Yes, I did also get a pair of socks. Harry Harry Potter Potter socks. socks. (laughs) But which Harry Potter? Deathly Hallows. <laughs> Do they have the Deathly Hallows on them or something? Dylan doesn't know what the Deathly Hallows are yet. Sorry. Oh, wow. Well, maybe this is the year, Dylan. Maybe this is the year you finish the seventh book. So so that's our Christmas recap. I uh, hope you guys got a lot of books for the holiday and you don't have too much shame, unlike us who have a lot of shame. Ah, uh, half a book. It's still shame, Toby. <laughs> so this week on the podcast, Andrew had a book chosen at random. Andrew, what book did you have chosen? I had This One Summer by Mariko and Jillian Tamaki. Yay! Yay! Um, I should say it was written by Mariko Tamaki and illustrated by Jillian Tamaki. When you're in graphic novel land, though, those two go really hand in hand, and I feel like the illustrations are at least as important as the words on the page, especially in this book. Are they sisters, cousins, or... Cousins. Cousins. All right, so here's my little logline. Young teenager Rose and her parents go to their lake house in Owago every year on Lake Huron in Canada. It's always the same, where it was until this time. Along with her summer friend, Wendy, Rose navigates an expanding world of adult problems, fighting parents, and the end of the summers of her childhood. That is a beautiful logline. Great job, Andrew. Thank you. I will say the logline on the back of the book is a lot better than that, and I was tempted to just read it, but I wanted to at least <laughs> give it a go. And this is your first graphic novel for the podcast, right? This is my first graphic novel. I'm a big graphic novel fan. I was really excited to have one pulled off the shelf for me, and I'm really glad to have done it. That said, this is uncharted territory and how to like sort of describe a graphic novel in an audio format for me. So this book is essentially a coming of age story about Rose. It centers along her and, and her parents and the the side character of Wendy, who's her close summer friend, who's just about a year and a half younger than her. And that's actually really important in the book because the experiences that Rose is beginning to have as that person just like sort of on the cusp of growing into adulthood versus Wendy, who's like still very much younger than her by those significant years there. She's not really going through puberty yet. She's not really interested in boys or romance of any kind. And so the book follows their summer uh, in, in Owago, which looks like a lovely seaside uh, or lakeside town in Canada. I will just jump in and say that I have read it. And that was one of my favorite parts is the, the relationship between the just one year difference in two girls and how that can change a relationship. Absolutely. Some things I really loved about this book, the artwork is fantastic. It does um, one of the things that I like the most in graphic novels where the like default panel drawing of it is pretty simple. Not necessarily simple. It's obviously really well done, but they're more like cartoony, comic-like people. And then every once in a while, Jillian Tamaki just goes crazy for these natural scenes where you see that she like is painting like beautiful landscapes that could be in museums and then having the characters interact with it, which I really loved. Mm. The whole book is done in sort of watercolory shades of blue. And it's so there's not like pops of color anywhere. And it lives sort of more in a black and white world with uh, blue accents. 
Mm-hmm. Sort of similar to how Fun Home does that with Green slash uh, Alison Bechdel's other book, Are You My Mother, does that with sort of a maroon. Very similar mm-hmm. style that way. And something I think that the authors do really well is play with your expectations and with the page turn in the book, because you'll get pages and pages that are like pretty predictable, like six panels per page. And then all of a sudden you'll turn the page and be thrown into this natural world or this page that just has like a tiny, tiny thing in the corner. And it really is effective in sort of creating the emotion of the story, either that these characters feel like they're thrown into something way bigger than them or that they feel so isolated that it's like been reduced down to just like their phone buzzing while they're waiting for a phone call or something like that. And so I thought that was really effective. Uh, I'm going to nerd out a little bit and use some of the the lingo I learned in my graphics novel course in college. Shout out to Professor Peter Antilles, one of my favorite classes I took my whole time there, and say the, the sort of the sonic world that the Tamakis create is really cool. And what I mean by that is sort of how they depict sound in just a drawn and written format. Um, there's a climactic section at the end where, depending on which character you're you're in the um, head of, you're either seeing like nothing in sort of peace or this like really insistent ticking of a clock that's written in the back and it gets more and more intense, which I thought was a really mm. cool, cool detail. Yeah, I didn't have any major orcs in the book other than that I thought it could have been slightly longer. It's only about 314 pages, which sounds like a lot, but in graphic novel world, that's not crazy long. And also there are like six page sections where not a lot happens that you have to read. Mm-hmm. And because I thought the story was such an interesting coming of age story and there was so much that could go into it. I kind of just wanted it to be a little longer. I wanted to get to know the characters a little more. Um, I wanted to see different sides of the parent characters or see different sides of Rose's and Wendy's relationship. But yeah, I really, it's a sort of testament to this book. I have nothing crazy that I can pick out as something that I really disliked. Mm. Okay. So how many stars are you going to give it? <laughs> so codify it. <laughs> so put the experience into numbers. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give it four stars still. Ooh. That review probably sounded like it was leading up to a to a five, but mm-hmm. that sense that there could have been more did affect my reading experience of it. And had there been more, I think it would have been a surefire five. But because I was able to like scoot through it so quickly and feel like there was still more I could have learned, I'll, I'm going to go with four. Then again, I will say I um, because this book was short, I did double back and, and read most of it again a second time. Mm. And I will I say you. that there's. Um, <laughs> You didn't do that with your book, Bailey? (laughs) I I will say that there is stuff that I found in my second reading that has sort of already added to my experience. So I think if I reread this in like two years, it could jump up to a five. And I was just being critical because I was reviewing it for a podcast. But yeah, no, I I, I really recommend this book. It's a great graphic novel. Also a great sort of starter graphic novel if you are new to the genre. It's easy to read. It's pretty straightforward in how it uses the form with still some like spice thrown in and how the panels are created but like it's not like in the shadow of no towers which is impossible to read if you're just sort of throwing Mm -hmm. being thrown into it or something like that so that's great are you going to keep it on your shelf i am absolutely going to keep it on my shelf nice very good all right this one summer four stars toby do you have any facts on the tamakis i do um, so, Jillian and Mariko Tamaki are cousins, has been noted earlier. Um, Jillian was born in 1980. Mariko was born in 1975. Jillian is the illustrator, and Mariko is the writer. Um, this is actually their second collaboration, their second graphic novel to be published together. Uh, their first one was called Skim, and it was published in 2008. It was also very well received. But I think this one is the big, big one. They really scored 
scored is the wrong word. Scored. Scored. Scored with this one. So yeah, this one summer has won multiple awards. Um, I don't want to go through all of them, but it's also won the prestigious Caldecott Award, which is interesting because the Caldecott Award is usually for a picture book for children. Mm-hmm. And this one summer is the first graphic novel to win the award. Wow. Uh, rather than, you know, normally you think of like a I don't know, like a children's picture book where you're like kind of flipping the big pages and there's a little bit of writing on the bottom of each one, you know? Yeah, that's surprising because when I think of like Caldecott winners, I think of kids. Like children. Yeah, this is kind of has some mature themes, so. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Skim, their previous collaboration, um, was high on the list of banned books in the year of its release. And this one summer was the number one banned book in 2016. No uh, way. Because it got some recognition and it has some, some, some stuff that maybe some parents had some issues with. That's insane to me. The book, like, certainly has some mature themes in it, but, like, I don't think it's anything that, like, a 16-year-old couldn't read and be like, oh, yeah, we talk about that with our friends all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's the thing. It's so funny when they ban books about, like, growing up. They're like, you can't handle it. I'm like, the girls reading this are experiencing this exact thing. It's funny. The banned book list is hilarious to me because it's like, I remember learning about it and when I was a kid and the first thought you have is like, where do I get these Right, exactly. Makes you want more. Where where, where can I read them? (laughs) So yeah. Um, So I have a couple comments here. Um, This is from a Publishers Weekly article um, called Summer Blues and it's an interview slash discussion with the authors. This is a quote from Mariko. Quote, the book is an anthropological study of adults from the perspective of these two kids. I think a lot of books about kids give them their own separate hermetically sealed world, especially books about teenagers, end quote. Um, and she said, basically went on go on to say that she wanted her characters to interact with and observe the world of adults because that's a lot that's a lot of what kids do. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's accurate, Andrew, having read this one? Yeah, absolutely. Seeing it as sort of a study of the adults is like a perfect description of the book. Awesome. Uh, talking about the style of illustration, Jillian Tamaki was a freelance worker. Um, she's trying to you know, make it make it in this hard world. She had to take about three years off of doing work to finish this book. Um, and she said because of that, she said she didn't really decide on a strong style for this book. She called it basically her default drawing style. So she didn't like, you know, get together and collaboratively decide this is what it's going to look like. She was just like, I have this much to do. It's going to look like this because this is what I like to draw like. All so right. if you're curious to see what her default drawing style is, this is it. She has this- a good default drawing style. Yeah, I was going to say, her default drawing style has a very distinct sense to it. It does not look like anybody else's. Nice. I, I will say, researching this, I ended up really wanting to read this book. It seems really cool. We have it on our shelf. You can oh, borrow it. Yeah, you can read it in um, three hours. I hate you. Um, So uh, I also have some comments here from Paste Magazine's interview with the illustrator and author. And Paste asks, You work remotely from each other, but the marriage of art and worlds is so close that it feels like the work of one person. Was there a lot of back and forth during the creative process, or was it a pretty clear division between script and art? This is Jillian. Uh, There was a lot of back and forth at certain stages of the project, like the initial pitch and when the initial script was finished and when the sketches were finished, and that was when we would consult with each other. But for the most part, it's the individual sitting alone making this thing. Mariko continues, Both of us go into this process as a collaboration, knowing that our goal is to work together to create a story. And for my process and for Jillian's process, even if you're working alone, your mind is sort of on the fact that you're bringing these two things together. So it's lonely, but you'll always have your sister in your heart like an emotional connection, I think. Aw, that's very that's sweet. very sweet, yeah. Yeah, it's nice. So Paste, I won't read the whole thing, but Paste is basically asking them about the kind of backlash they've received, labeling it a children's book mm-hmm. and getting banned and all this kind of stuff. And Mariko says, 
Yes, it was removed from a school, I believe, in New Jersey, almost removed, but the librarian, as librarians are prone to do, put up a good fight and made sure it was kept on the shelf. I think the thing with this book, which is kind of great, is that it's more about what they talk about than what they show, which to me is the life of a 12-year-old. All you're doing is vaguely describing what you think everyone else is talking about, especially when it comes to sexual stuff. You're just guessing. So that's kind of what happens in the book, a lot of guessing. On that level, I don't really think there's anything in here that's more graphic than what you would find on CSI. There are no female dead bodies to look at. Oh, <laughs> like that, that is comment. true. And then last comment here is from Mariko. This is just a throwaway I thought was funny. Mariko says, when Julian and I were in Houston, we met these young boys who were pretty obsessed with the one male teenage boy character, and they were all about the experience of this one boy and his girlfriend who, in their mind, was cheating on him. And I was like, wow, you have walked out of this really feminist book with the one male macho story to talk about. (laughs) But they were perfectly content with that, so I was like, okay, cool, maybe read the book when you're 10 years older, and it'll be a different story. <laughs> that's that's funny. hilarious having read this book yeah. that that's what they pulled out of it um so yeah that's that's them they seem really cool and i really want to read this book awesome uh, mm-hmm. we'll let you borrow it okay <sighs> it's that time uh, bailey i don't think you had a book to read this time did you we let you off the hook <laughs> uh everyone uh, bailey just murdered toby so i don't know if we can keep <laughs> <laughs> end of <laughs> podcast <laughs> So Andrew had, you know, a 300-page graphic novel. 314-page, but okay. That he read twice. Mm. I had the longest book on my shelf. <laughs> 1,244 pages. Whoa. Oh, no. I did not realize it was 1,200. Yeah, so, That's crazy. so at the beginning of this weekend, we're recording on a Sunday, I had 600 pages left, but that means I'd already read 700. Well done. But I still had 600 to go. Uh, so the, the book is called... The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Dumas. (laughs) So, for those of you who don't know what this book is about, revenge. It is about revenge. It is about a young man in France in uh, the early 1800s named Edmond Dantes. And he's a very innocent, popular young man. um, And he's only 20, but just chosen to be the captain of a ship. And he's about to marry the love of his life, this beautiful woman named Mercedes. He's very excited. And then, (laughs) Uh and then three men who are jealous of him conspire to ruin his life so that they can take what they want from him. So they make up a false accusation. They get him imprisoned in this awful prison called the Chateau d'If. He's there, he's alone, he's brooding, and he decides, I will get my revenge. So eventually, I won't say how, but after escaping the prison, and that seems like a spoiler, but it happens in the first 200 pages of 1200. Yeah. (laughs) After escaping the prison, he becomes this character, the Count of Monte Cristo, and sets out to take revenge on the men who have ruined his life. So the first thing I want to say about this book is something that I thought was unique to me, but then I put it out there to the Instagram followers, and a lot of people agree with me. So when I first started reading the book, and I was reading about him going to prison and the escape, I was like, have I read this book before? Like, this is very familiar to me. How do I know this story? And I thought, maybe I saw the movie with Guy Pierce. but do you know how I know the story? Wishbone. What's the story? <laughs> Wishbone. So for those of you who are maybe <laughs> Wishbone. either younger or older than 
you know our exact age old millennial that i am wishbone was a show on pbs it only lasted for two seasons isn't that sad wow i have a lot i have a lot of memories related to those two seasons to be fair the first season was 40 episodes the second season was 10 but Uh, uh, what happened between those episodes (laughs) okay well 50 episodes is still pretty solid yeah yeah and apparently they filmed them all within a year i was reading about it i think there was a lot of probably a lot of reruns as well right Oh yeah, okay. it was. It's. I think it's even maybe still rerunning on okay. PBS. So it's a show called Wishbone, the do- the little dog with a big imagination, and it's about this Jack Russell Terrier. <laughs> His real name is Soccer. I don't know if you guys remember that. I no. do remember that, and I'm upset at myself that that's a detail my brain has kept in my <laughs> life. Soccer. Because of his ear. Yeah, his what ear it looks like a paw print or a soccer a ball. No, it's great. It's, it's the best. So Wishbone, you know, he has these adventures in the present with his owner, but it reminds him of classic literature. And so then you see the dog as a character um, in these classic books. So, for example, you see him as Edmond Dantes. When you're a kid, it's just, it makes sense. But watching it, I rewatched this episode. It's just hilarious, like, to see, like, Mercedes be like, in love with this dog. Because it's a human, right? Playing yeah. Mercedes. <laughs> he's he's the only animal character in yeah, that's right. <laughs> and like these two like burly human men putting like him in chains to take him to prison. <laughs> you can't be the captain of a ship. You're a dog. <laughs> I highly recommend rewatching that episode on YouTube if if you remember it. So this episode was so vivid in my mind, and the episode is, you know, twenty-two minutes long. The first I don't know, 15 minutes are just the imprisonment and the escape. <laughs> and then the rest of it, they just take one scene from the last thousand pages. Yeah. So I have had my revenge. Yeah. So so that's why that part was so vivid to me. And then as I was going, I was like, there's a lot more to this book than just that beginning part. Yeah. So the Count of Monte Cristo. Guys, it's great. Yeah. Hey, it's really oh. good. I was worried. Yeah. I, <laughs> I wasn't mean, worried. It's so fun. I mean, the fact, I mean, I, I'm saying this, but like the fact that I could read 600 pages in that amount of time for a book that was published in 1844 tells you that it holds up. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have been impossible. There's parts of it that feel really modern. He does a great job of including themes and characters that feel right out of today. There's a queer character and you're like, oh, okay. You know, it's different. It feels modern. There's excellent characterization. The Count of Monte Cristo is so catty. I just love (laughs) it. He he just gets up to all these creative ways to ruin people's lives that have to do with irony. Like, you know, if it's a banker, he wants to make him lose all his money or whatever. And he plays the long con. Yeah. It's like the original Ocean's Eleven almost because it's just like these like, unimaginably patient games that he plays with people. Oh, yeah. And he has an endless source of funds. Exactly. And because of the way it's set up, there's this really great dramatic irony that you, the reader, and Count of Monte Cristo are the only one that knows what's going on, Mm -hmm. but you're seeing all the pieces come together, and you're seeing, you're like, I see what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Really creative ways to show revenge, and it feels modern, and the dialogue holds up. Yeah. Also, I think he uses structure really well, and I don't know because I didn't have time to research how the book was written, but it does feel like almost like episodic, like he just kept going and going and going. Yeah. But in that, he'll switch between the different stories at play and it will feel like a good TV show where you'll be so into one storyline and then the chapter break will happen and, and then you'll be like, oh, but I wanted to know what happened. But then you're like, oh yeah, but this storyline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that works really well overall and it all comes together in the end. He's also, Dumas is really great at these pithy one-liners or just quotes that you want to take out and like write on your wall. 
Here's an example. <laughs> right on Bailey's your wall. walls are covered with ballpoint pen. I mean, as a teenager, I probably would have. Um, like on page 953, truly generous men are always ready to feel compassion when their enemy's misfortune exceeds the bounds of their hatred. It's like, oh, yeah, that's a great way of saying that. It's an yeah. interesting idea, but it relates to me. Great way of saying it. It relates to me. <sighs> Truly generous men. <laughs> you know, I can imagine like her looking at her high school rival. Rival, truly generous men are always willing. You guys know me. Maybe the listeners don't know this, but I am all about justice. Oh yeah, yeah revenge. <laughs> Bailey loves justice. These people are dead to me. Like this, da, 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 da. and so a lot of this I understood. Like I was rooting for him to get yeah. revenge, and. Well, and then, you know, part of the lesson is maybe that maybe that's not a good idea. But for me, it's like, no, get the revenge. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, then, but then I also like in that quote, you might feel bad when, oh, wait, this is worse than I expected for them. Yeah. So, yeah, I related to the character. <laughs> <laughs> I related to the character of Edmund Johnson. <laughs> I only have one negative thing to say about the book. And then I have a note about the translation. Orc. Orc. The one negative thing, the one orc is that here's the thing about the book and so if you decide it's time for me to read this book i've always wanted to read it you need to know this going in at about page 300 which is a little bit after you know the escape Mm -hmm. suddenly the plot slows down he cuts to these two characters these two young men in rome and usually when they cut to random characters you can see oh i know who that is i know how it connects for this you're like i don't understand it's not that interesting What's going on? And that goes on for about 100 pages. And then eventually you realize how it all connects. But it really suddenly slows down there. So my advice to anyone who's reading this is just to plow through that. Skim if you need to. Because that's the only part that is slow in the whole book. Mm-hmm. But it's easy to get discouraged where you're like, oh, this is I'm going to be done with this book really quickly. And then slam. Yeah. Yeah. Just get through it. And then one thing I want to say about the translation. The translation that Andrew gave me, the one that I have on my shelf, is from Wordsworth Classics, which I don't want to sound ungrateful, but it's probably just like the cheapest version that was out there. And that's... Ooh. I, are, you, are you offended by that? I'm so sorry. No, no, that's fine. I got that when I was work, grinding, you know, I was grinding at a, a restaurant job for days on end, saving my pennies to buy you a copy of <laughs> No! <laughs> it's only recently that I've been going back and reading classics that I start to pay attention to the translator yeah. and to research it a little bit more because I think it can affect you. So This cover is so bad. It's, yeah. It's like, uh, like the PBS, like master's playhouse like a version of it where it's like community theater actors are like leering at you from the cover it's like somebody made some fan art of what they think he looks like and put on the cover so i researched and found that the edition that most people prefer is the robin bus edition which is for penguin so if you are interested in that i would just go with the penguin one and i'll just noticeably better for you noticeably better so i'm just gonna give you one sentence from each book so you can just see the difference in the translation and then you can decide if it matters to you andrew she's not going to tell you which edition it is and you have to guess which is the good translation and which is the translation that you gave her tight okay this is option one he told himself that it was the enmity of man and not the vengeance of heaven that had thus plunged him into the deepest misery. He consigned his unknown persecutors to the most horrible tortures he could imagine and found them all insufficient because after torture came death and after death, if not repose, at least the boon of unconsciousness. Option two. He decided that it was human hatred and not divine vengeance that had plunged him into this abyss. He doomed these unknown men to every torment that his inflamed imagination could devise while still considering that the most frightful were too mild, and above all, too brief for them. Torture was followed by death, and death brought, if not repose, at least an insensibility that resembled it. So which one do you think is better? 
I think the first one is the one you ended up reading, The Penguin. Ooh. Really? Interesting. It, it's not. It's the opposite. You're wrong. Uh, it's interesting because you can hear that it's the same ideas. Yeah. It's just. But I like this one much better. I like the second one much better. I just found it a little more readable. Yeah. And so I picked up them both and I read the first page of both and I thought, ah, oh, the second one is more readable. So. And the first one, I, I kind of felt my brain kind of scrambling to be like, okay, let's decode this. Whereas the same kind of somewhat complex ideas being executed in the second one that I was just like, oh yeah, I got it. That's exactly it. Like they use just a little higher level of vocabulary or sentence structure that it just takes another second to decode, yeah. decode than it feels less colloquial, I guess. Yeah. So anyway, so this How is many stars? this is all to say this is a five star book. Yeah, five stars. I'm gonna. Well, actually, I'm not gonna keep it on my shelf because it's. I don't love the edition. With that said, <laughs> I'm going to probably purchase a nice edition of this yeah. translation that I like. Andrew, do you hate me? No, that's totally fine. There was a time in my life where I would was not doing research into the best translations of things, and I was simply <laughs> trying to get you presents. Anyway, um, I have facts. You got facts. I got facts. Alexandre Dumas. Do we, are we saying Dumas or Dumas? I said it both ways because some people say Dumas and some people say Dumas. And is it Alexandre? Alexandre. Alexandre. Yeah. Okay. Alexandre Dumas was born uh, Alexandre Dumas, Davy de la Pailleterie. Yep. Uh, twenty On the 24th of July, uh, 1802, and he lived until the 5th of December, 1870. Uh, he was a prolific writer, and his novels uh, and plays have been adapted since the early 20th century into nearly 200 films. Um, he actually some, he has some interesting family heritage. Um, he himself is mixed race. His father was born in the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which, uh, which we call Haiti today. Mm-hmm. And his grandfather was also named Alexandre. Alexandra, and his grandfather had an affair with a woman named Marie Celeste Dumas, who was a Haitian slave at the time. Mm, so, affair in quotes. Affair in quotes. Affair in quotes. Yeah. I, yeah. Affair in quotes. Now, what's interesting is that Dumas, the author's father, ended up having a falling out with his grandfather. So both Dumas' father and the author himself ended up ditching their original surname of David de la Payeterie. Um, so they ended up ditching that name and going with Dumas in kind of a snub to their grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was Respect. interesting. Yeah. His father was mixed race and he rose to the rank of general at the age of 31. And he held the highest rank of any mixed race man in the European army at the time. Wow. In 1797, he distinguished himself at the Battle of Adige when he surprised and defeated the Austrian battery. Um, then he got into a fight with Napoleon left the army and was imprisoned for nearly two years and died after he got out. So people loosely people loosely claim that he may or may not have been a partial inspiration for the Count of Monte Cristo, but the facts aren't entirely there. Yeah. He was he was imprisoned, some say unjustly. Um, Related but, to Napoleon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it's an interesting it's just an interesting story. And that's how Dumas came to um, use the surname Dumas. Cool. So uh, he worked early as a um, as a clerk, I believe, um, but he was always interested in writing. From 1839 to 1841, he started with essays and plays that became um, very popular. Then he moved to novels. Um, he collaborated with his own fencing master named Augustin Grisier and created the novel in 1840, The Fencing Master. The, the story... <laughs> I wonder who, whose idea that was. You know what you should call this book? Well, that's, you know, it's actually interesting you bring that up. I'll talk about that later. 
um, the story is written as loosely as Grisier's account of how he came to witness the, the events of the Decembrist revolt in Russia. And the novel actually became banned in Russia by Tsar Nicholas I um, because it was embarrassing to the royal family. And Dumas was prohibited from visiting the country until after the Tsar's death. Ooh. So with one of his earliest novels, he, he ticked off the wrong people in Russia. Same. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned that, Dylan, because uh, Dumas often got in trouble because while he had a really strong voice of his own, his plots were often borrowed. So that whole thing with his fencing master, he wrote the book with him, but then didn't really give him much of the money. And the fencing master came back and said, hey, I gave you this whole plot. And Dumas was like, yeah, well, I wrote all the stuff. <laughs> um, and that happened to him over and over again. So The Count of Monte Cristo itself uh, is an example of the appropriation process. His inspiration for the novel is actually multiple different things people say the inspiration for the novel is. I tried to narrow it down to one. This one sounds maybe the most accurate to me. Mm -hmm. um, he read an anecdote in Memory Historie de Red Archive de la Police de Paris. Can I say? Perfect pronunciation. Thank you. Is that Thank like you. police? It's like police histories. Okay. Yeah, police stories. It was a collection of intriguing criminal cases uh, recorded by a man named Jacques Pouchet, a former police archivist. Uh, the anecdote uh, said that in 1807, a man named Francois Picard became engaged to a pretty and wealthy girl, inspiring the envy of his friends. One of the friends persuaded the others to join him in denouncing Picard as an English spy, and then he was arrested and kept in prison for seven years. While he was in prison, he befriended a rich Italian cleric who left Picard his vast fortune. Picard returned to Paris in 1815 as a wealthy man, and he basically, using his wealth, as well as many, many disguises, he enacted a plan to get his revenge, and he murdered several of them. Hold on. That... Uh, that's the plot of the book. Yeah, that's the entire <laughs> plot of the book. Yeah. So the thing is, is like, people, people called him out. They said, this is the whole plot. This is what happens. But obviously... The plot is not the best part. Like, the plot yeah. is fun, and things move along, but it's the gorgeous prose, it's yeah. the fun, and it's like, you can know, you could give anybody that plot, and they wouldn't come up with The Count That's of Monte Cristo. So that was kind of his argument back. Um, but he also used ghostwriters, he used writing partners, and often did not pay them, did not give them any fame or fortune. He was kind of a shady guy, but also seemed like very like very generous of spirit as well. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> um, so he earned an insane amount of money, but... As his uh, riches grew, so did his lifestyle. He was reported to have as many as 40 mistresses throughout his life um, and three completely verified illegitimate children. So it's like, it's even strange to call them, quote, illegitimate children because he basically was like, this is my child. <laughs> to the point where he had a son who was also named Alexandre Dumas, who also became a celebrated writer, who became so well known that at the time, people would refer to Alexandre Dumas, the author of Count of Monte Cristo, as Alexandre Dumas' père for father, and the son as Alexandre Dumas' fils for son. So it's just pretty bizarre that he's like, this is my illegitimate son. I'm going to help him on his career as a writer. He'll do the same thing as me. I'll be the father and he'll be the son. Yeah. Same name. Exactly. So, yeah, uh, he had uh, he had a, a wonderful time spending all his money. He died almost insolvent um, because he threw massive parties, um, had a lot of mistresses, did a lot of gambling, and lived uh, a good life, apparently. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, my final fun fact uh, I quite enjoy just because it's fun to say when The Count of Monte Cristo was originally published and through to the 1850s, the title contained a misspelling uh, with a title spelled The Count of Monte Cristo. 
with an H in, because uh. instead of with no, with, yeah. So in 1846, a correction was made, but it took until 1860 for them to get them all out of circulation. Um, so today, if you have one of those, if you ever find a copy in like an old musty cellar that has a misspelling, Count of Monte Cristo, could be worth a ton of money. Wow, that's good to know. Thank I'm going to go start breaking into old bookshops. <laughs> you can also yeah. just put an H in there. I mean, that seems easier. Christ, no. <laughs> Use a Sharpie, Bailey. Change the title on yours. No one will be able to tell. It's my revenge. And that's my facts. Awesome. Great job, Toby. Thank you. <laughs> Andrew, do you have a game for us? I do. I have a game. Are you excited? Right. Hooray. Yes. Hurrah! Kalu uh, Kale. Is, is the reward for this game unimaginable riches, which we can use to get vengeance on our enemies? Yes! Hooray! <laughs> All right, so the name of the game this week is Canadian Revenge. Ooh. Okay. So the way this game will work is I have written five scenarios in which somebody tries to get revenge, but I have left one thing blanked out in each of them. The thing that is blanked out is a famous Canadian something. Ooh. So you if I said blank leave, what would you think that is? Maple leaves. Maple leaves, yes. So think about all the like sort of Canadian stereotypes you can think of and get ready. So the actual mechanics of the game, I will read the scenario saying blank instead of the Canadian item, and you will buzz in by saying sorry. <laughs> We will go until somebody gets the answer correct. So uh, whoever goes first just gets first crack at the answer because I need every answer to be at some point correctly answered to make the numbers work. Okay. First to three wins. Do you have any questions? Sorry, no. Sorry, no. All right. Remember, it's sorry. If you say sorry when you buzz in, I will not sorry. accept it. Thank you. Sorry. sorry. We're going to lose sorry. our three listeners in Canada, but that's okay. <laughs> Number one. After burning his mouth on hot coffee, Dantes burns down his local... Blank. Sorry. Sorry. Bailey said that first. That was, that was Bailey. Tim Hortons. Oh. That is correct. One point to Bailey. After burning uh. his mouth on hot coffee, Dantes burns down his local Tim Hortons. All right, number two. An outfielder refuses to throw Dantes a foul ball, so he puts Tiger Balm in the jock straps of all the blank. Uh, sorry. Toby? The, t- the Toronto Maple Leafs? No. Sorry. Bailey? The Toronto baseball team. Blue Jays? There you go. Yes, Bailey has got it correct. Yes! Toronto Blue Jays is correct. I got the city right. (laughs) You got the city right. (laughs) Um, Wrong sport, though. I'm so sorry. Was that hockey? I think that's hockey. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's hockey. All right, number three. The spray from this natural wonder gets his suede shoes wet. Naturally, Dantes must build a dam and block up blank. Sorry. Bailey, you're going to win the game. Oh, no. Niagara Falls? Oh, yes, Bailey, you're correct. Oh, oh no. 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 Toby's lost, but we're going to keep going. Things get complicated when this singer doesn't answer Dantes's fan mail. So he breaks Blank's car windshield with a skateboard. Sorry. Sorry. Toby? Who is Avril Lavigne? Don't need to say who is, but sure. That's correct. Who is <laughs> Avril Lavigne? <laughs> One point for Toby. I didn't know she was Canadian. Yeah. I just I just I just listen to the context clues. Okay. All right. Final one. The great one misspells Dantes's name in an autograph, so he's forced to kill blank with a hockey stick. Sorry. Sorry. Toby? Who is Wayne Gretzky? That is correct. Still, don't yeah. need the who is. Who is? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but this isn't Jeopardy. Sorry. Oh, sorry, but it is. Ooh, Alex Rebecca is Canadian. Ooh. Oh. So congratulations, Bailey. You have won the game of Canadian Revenge 3-2 to two over Toby. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. 
Mm. Well, I went from Maine, which is very close to Canada, so. That's very true. Great game, Andrew. Good job. Thank you. I liked, I appreciated that, that they game. were all about Dantes. I like that. Mm-hmm. He got such a taste for revenge that he couldn't stop once he then went to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. All right. Uh, now's the point in our podcast where we choose books at random from our shelves to be read next. It is The Choosening. The Choosening. I'm really excited. Ooh. A little peek behind the curtain here. We have had a long layoff from recording because of the holidays. So I haven't had a new book in a very long time. And so I'm pretty oh. amped. I hope he gets the anatomy of melancholy. Nah. <laughs> so, Andrew, you say you've been pretty stranded out there with nothing to read? I didn't say anything like that, but I'm excited for what you're about to say next. <laughs> That's why you... Dylan prepares these a week in advance. <laughs> Look, Andrew, you got number 46, Robinson Crusoe and a Journal of the Plague Year by Daniel Defoe. Is that a combined edition? Yeah, so here we go. We didn't plan this, listeners. This is my only other combined novel on my shelf. Well, I am down if you just read Robinson Crusoe. Do you want me to say Robinson Crusoe? No, no, we have to say what it is. Why don't you tell us, like, if you end up reading the second one, and if you do... We'll let you choose your next book. Yeah, we'll let you choose your next book. That'll be the reward. All right, that sounds good. All right, what do I have? Number 17. Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Ah. Yeah. That's, a short, that's a short one. Significantly yeah. shorter than 1,244 yeah. pages. Yeah, it's- Sci-fi classic. I haven't read it. I'm excited. You'll like it. Yeah. I think I like 1984 better. Ooh. Ooh. Well, we'll see. So that means next week on the podcast, we have a mini-sode. We're talking about our New Year's reading resolutions, but they're going to be kind of unconventional. It's not going to be just Bailey, stop buying books, get it together. That'll also be one of them, but it won't just be that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then in two weeks, we'll have a regular episode. Toby has One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey, and I'll have Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Whoop, whoop. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the To Read List podcast. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the To Read List podcast and on Twitter at To Read List pod. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go on to your podcast rating app of choice and rate us five stars. It really helps us out. Uh, it makes us feel good and it helps us spread the word about the podcast. And we really appreciate it. Thank you. And also, please tell a friend if you like this podcast to check it out. Word of mouth is still our best way of finding new listeners. And we'd love you if you did. We'd write you love letters and we would take revenge on anyone you want if you can prove you got us new listeners. That's true. I back that. (laughs) Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you next week. Happy reading. Books, 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 books.